Is it possible to live a longer quality of life after a heart disease diagnosis? We are the patients who have resolved to become healthier, both physically and mentally. From managing symptoms to managing side effects, from managing medication to managing finances. We share the challenges and the triumphs. Discover what it really means to survive and thrive with a heart condition. This is Living with Heart Disease, a Heart of a Giant production. Here is our host, Samane Uba. Hi, everyone. Welcome. Uh, this is Living with Heart of a Giant. Um, like you know, every month we have conversations with um, patients and then um, other folks involved in the the world system, so caregivers, family, uh, friends, and then today we have somebody special. She's, I think, um, if I had to put it simply, it would be like the gladiator of uh, heart health advocacy. Uh, I've seen her in action in the city, in the, uh-huh. at the Senate. I don't think you would want to be, I would want to be dealing with her. Um, so today we have Alison Peron Drag, who's the, who's going to tell us about, um, heart health advocacy, but also, about herself and how she got involved. Um, she's has tremendous of experience in this space. I'll let her introduce a little bit about, talk a little bit about, about her soon, but she's been uh, working with the Bacon Heart Association for over 15 years. Um, she's been in this advocacy space for uh, many, many years and also been, um, been involved in multiple roles. Um, so currently she's a government, government uh, relation director and the relig- regional lead for the American Heart Association, Heart and Stroke Association, uh, at, um, based in Waltham, right? Yes. Right. And, uh, and currently she lives in, uh, Norton with one of my, with her husband and one of my favorite five year old, Riley. So welcome, uh, Alison. Thanks for uh, making time for us. Thanks for joining us. Of course. Thanks for having me. Thanks a lot. So for those who don't know you, um, how will you introduce yourself? Sure. So I have been um, a lobbyist for the American Heart Association. And I know that's not always a great word. People always kind of associate lobbyists with um, sometimes, you know, bad, dirty politics, but I, I embrace it. Um, I advocate on behalf of all of our heart and stroke patients and trying to improve the system. The Heart Association kind of works in two fields. Um, we work on kind of creating systems once you've had that event and making sure that you get the treatment that you need. But we also work really hard on preventing that event. So, you know, a lot of heart and stroke um, cases can be prevented with either healthy eating or physical activity, making sure that you're not smoking or that you have access to good, strong health care. So a number of things that we work on on that field as well. Um, But then obviously some things can't be prevented. So we want to make sure that if people experience any sort of cardiovascular disease, whether it be a heart attack or sudden cardiac arrest or a stroke, that those systems are in place to protect them and make sure that they continue to kind of live a healthier life among us. And it's been really great. I get to work with people like you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I have, um, like I was saying earlier, I have, um, um, I couldn't find a picture um, of when we met. And because I still remember the date, I think it was March, 2018. We were pregnant at the time, so say, and we were living in. Uh, uh, I say we were pregnant because those were twins, and I felt like I also carried a bit. Um, we were in lower mild, uh, but this is also at the Senate. Um, is it the Senate, the State House? Yeah, this it. is in Great Hall. Yeah, this is in the Hall of Flags where we have our lobby day, and um, you were able to come. I think tw- two times you've been. I think since yeah. you've done our lobby day. Yeah. Yep. I remember at, the, at that session there was a few 
um, bills were pushing. I remember there was the one about um, the 911 call for strokes um, uh, and basically making sure that folks were direct, uh, are directed to the right resources. Uh, there was also, the big one was also the, I think which, which you won, but it was about the... Um, flavoring? Yes, the flavoring. The, so yeah. some of those ones. So I'd love to hear a bit about those. And I think the third one that comes to my mind is the taxes on the sugar, sugary drinks and, and some of the other ones. So, yeah, so I'll start with tobacco flavoring because that one actually passed. So Massachusetts was the very first state to eliminate all flavors and all tobacco products, which was really amazing. So um, for many years, the Heart Association had, we really started in tobacco policy. That was kind of the first policy that we tackled. So it's been, you know, um, we just celebrated 40 years of advocacy. So it's been 40 years of working on tobacco policy, basically. Um, and over 25 here in Massachusetts, where we created the, the tobacco control program and we created the first tax on tobacco. But we know in particular, kids are really uh, sensitive to kind of the marketing and the targeting from tobacco companies. And we started to see, thanks to education and prevention, a lot of those rates for youth go down. And then we had an explosion of e-cigarettes and we had an explosion of flavors um, where most kind of traditional combustible cigarettes don't have flavors except for menthol cigarettes. And then you kind of have little cigars, had some flavoring and chew, right? Um, and what we were seeing was kids were getting hooked because the flavors enticed them, right? They were, and they were really convinced that they were not tobacco products, that they were safe. They were just flavor and water vape, which was crazy. And they were getting really hooked really fast because the amount of nicotine in e-cigarettes um, is actually more. So one cartridge of um, e-juice equals a pack of cigarettes. So it's a lot of nicotine these kids were consuming in kind of sittings where they normally wouldn't smoke a pack of cigarettes to start off with. And the flavoring also helps it go down easier. So kids weren't having that kind of harsh, like, ooh, I don't want this, and they would stop. So we've been really a leader in tobacco for many years in Massachusetts, which has been really fortunate. We had amazing legislative sponsors. Normally, a bill can take, on average, about seven years. We had been working around tobacco flavor for a while, but it was our first session that we filed a, a straight bill to eliminate it. And it passed um, in its first year, which was amazing. Yeah. And again, we became the first state. Uh, we're just starting to get some data, and we are seeing that people, a significant amount of people did quit. But for us, it was more about stopping that next generation, right? Making sure that kids didn't start. And we still need to ensure that the kids that did start get the treatment they need to quit. And so, you know, tobacco has always kind of been like a three-legged stool, right? You want to make sure that the prices are high enough so people are encouraged to quit and kids don't start. You want to eliminate the flavors so people are encouraged. And you want to make sure you provide that kind of treatment and cessation and prevention messaging. And so we, we continue to do that work. Really proud of that. A number of states have, um, California has passed it, but they're in actually litigation. We were really close in Maine this year, and I'm so bummed because I really wanted to be a second state, but we'll get there, I think, next year. Washington, D.C. just passed it, and there's a number of kind of localities that have done it. So I think we'll start to see that trend, which is really great. The yeah. tobacco industry is really powerful. They put a lot of money in lobbying against us. Um, the good news is the federal government is looking at eliminating menthol as well. And I think as that happens, more states will continue to push that. Um, very similar to the tobacco industry is the sugary drink industry. So we've been working for a couple of years on a sugary drink tax. Um, we have passed it in a number of um, cities. So Philadelphia, San Francisco, Boulder, Colorado. We have not passed it in a single state. It'd be really great if Massachusetts was the first one. I don't know that we're quite there yet, but I think we're going to get close. 
I think where we are with sugary drinks is where we were with tobacco probably 20, 30 years ago, where people are like, I think it's bad, but I don't know yet, right? Mm-hmm. And I think the harder part is there's not like a secondhand nature to it like there is on smoking. And so people will say, well, it's my choice if I want to drink a sugary drink. Yeah. We have certainly seen a decrease in full calorie sodas go down, but we've seen an uptick in juices and energy drinks and sports drinks, right? So you're getting, they're getting the sugar at a different levels. And again, this is really about kids, right? Yeah. Kids are getting a lot of sh- more sugar than they're supposed to have. Kids are on average are supposed to have kind of one sugary drink a week. And it used to be back in the day, a real treat if you had a sugary drink, right? I remember I was always the weird kid because my mom never let me have sugary drinks. So I'd be at a party and I'd ask for milk, right? And so, and I just didn't think about it, which is great now because I still don't drink sugary drinks as an adult. And my son doesn't have them either. Um, he gets like, you know, zero sugar lemonade and thinks it's like the greatest thing. Right? I don't know. I have to. How do you do that? Because the grandparents are around, right? So how do you stop the yeah, but my parents, no, because my parents didn't let me have sugar. So if they started giving it to him, I'd go crazy, right? And so get, it's funny, though, because... My mother-in-law, they need to talk to yeah. my mother-in-law. Well, and my husband's a dentist, so, you know, I mean, between the two of us, like, the kid's got no shop for sugar. Um, so it's funny, though, because it was... E- what I found in his um, daycare and preschool was it was easier to give a sugary drink because they got that. That was cheaper for them, and that's what they got. And water in my town is really hard, right? It's, yeah. um, and so they have to bring in bottled water. So like, there's always been a sign for him since he was little that Riley gets no juice. Yeah. And he's like really adamant about it. Like I remember one day they did like a apple cider thing and he like wouldn't drink it. Yes. <laughs> and they called me and I was like, I mean, he can have a little sip. He's not going to like it though. And he didn't, but he was like crazy about it. So I think some of it is just making sure we're putting more messaging out there about sugary drinks so that people start to do that. And that when the tax does happen, that people are more aware of it. I think for us, it's also tying the tax back to the communities that are going to be hardest hit, right? With any of the taxes we work on, whether it's tobacco or sugary drinks, it's really regressive, right? People of lower income end up spending more because that's what they have access to, right? So we want to make sure that as we're in these communities, that the funding would go to like SNAP. So you'd have access to fresh fruits and vegetables, that we make sure that water is actually safe to drink and accessible and free, right? That we make sure that we continue to have access to key community health, so like community health centers, places where people who need the care because of the chronic diseases are able to get it. And so that's really what we're doing. And we really need to start kind of that groundswell in the community to get more advocates around sugary drinks. So I'm hoping we'll make some more progress on that this legislative session. But yeah, and then the last one that you talked about was stroke, which is like my baby. Um, I feel like I've been working on it the whole time I've been here. So it's about almost 50. It's definitely over a decade now. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, I like to say it's a no brainer, but yet we, we haven't done it yet. So when you suffer a stroke in the Commonwealth and you call 911, um, EMTs will come, they'll do a stroke severity scale in the field. And regardless of your severity, they have to take you to the closest hospital. Now, it's not always the most appropriate level hospital. Sometimes you need a higher level of care, but that's what they have to do right now. So we want to change it that based on the severity, you can go to the most appropriate level, not just the closest. We get a lot of pushback from the hospital association because they obviously worry about bypassing the smaller community hospitals. But you're talking about a very small percentage of strokes, only about um, 10 to 15 percent are really severe strokes that need higher level of care usually some sort of surgical intervention. You have a blood clot and a a large vessel occlusion. They can mechanically 
remove it, if you have a brain bleed, there's going to be community hospitals that can't do that. And we don't want them to, right? They have a place. That's what they're supposed to do. Very similar to trauma or bad heart attacks where you bypass and you go to that appropriate level. That's what we're asking for. I am really fingers crossed that this is its year. (laughs) Yeah. I I find it because as I've been learning, um, I guess spending more time here, I find that interesting because we have, well, this is Mali, but I feel many other countries have um, community level hospital and then it goes higher and higher. So when something is really severe, they go straight to the, you know, tertiary level or the higher level. Um, but it's interesting that there's, I guess, you know, blockages around that. But what can some of the, like, community actively do this? Cause we know about some of these things happening in the state, but like, um, and, you know, some of us can do it cause we have our personal story, but it could be general public. So how can yeah. folks support, um, maybe don't, you know, that might not be part of the health community, but how can they support? Yeah. So, you know, I think for us, um, the good part of my job is that there is almost everyone is touched by heart disease and stroke, right? So they know somebody in their life that has touched by it, or they just care. They want to make sure that their kids grow up in a healthy place. Um, So we have a really great grassroots advocacy network called You're the Cure, really about taking the time to speak up. And so you can start really easy and just send um, kind of pre-populated emails on particular issues that you care about to your legislators. Or you can come like you did and come and lobby and meet your legislators. And we set up those meetings. Um, You can share your story through, you know, our, we have a great media advocacy and communications teams where you can share your stories. You can get involved in our events and really meet other people and be part of that as well. And so there's different options, you know, and I think it's funny because, you know, we think of Massachusetts as a leader in healthcare and to your earlier thing, we've seen so many countries kind of tackle that. And I think we, some of our systems almost get in the way, right? And so, you know, we looked at hospitals that could get people in and out of the door really fast. So even if you stopped at that community hospital, um, I think it was in Italy, and you stopped at that community hospital, they could get you to that higher level of care in under 30 minutes. It takes us 300 minutes on average to get you out. And that's crazy, right? We wouldn't need the system if you could move somebody, transfer them really quickly, but that's not how it works, right? And so we just want to bypass that. And we're a pretty small state, so you're not talking about going much further, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. yes, would want to go maybe past Milton and go into Boston Medical Center, right? For instance, um, and I would so, say Brigham, but Boston Medical Brigham. is also. We'll good. go to Brigham, right? Um, and so, and most of the hospitals that would be considered kind of tier one or comprehensive level have already gone out and seek that designation, right? So, Mass General, Brigham, Boston Medical Center, Tufts. UMass, Leahy, um, and then hopefully Bay State out in Springfield will as well. Yeah. And it's like 35 or 36 states have already done this. We are not groundbreaking here. We're actually very far behind. So hopefully we'll do that. But yeah, I think, you know, it's just finding those opportunities. If there's an issue that we work on, we get a lot of people who are really engaged in our um, CPR issues because they've lost somebody or someone was saved because of a defibrillator or CPR. And um, we get a lot of people engaged on stroke because they themselves have a personal story. And then we have a good handful of people who just care about the prevention side, like sugary drinks or tobacco or healthy school meals or um, quality physical education, right? There's like a whole breadth of it. So I would say you'rethecure.org is the best place to kind of sign up. And then you can kind of go from there. I'll also make sure you have my contact information and um, feel free to share that. Anybody that's interested in the advocacy work, whether it's Massachusetts or if you're in another state and you're interested or another country, we can always connect you across for we are global, so we happily work on that. Definitely. I like it. Um, so I think um, this is kind of like, you know, um, I wanted to give folks an idea of 
the breadth of the activity is doing and is it goes from like system systemic issues to um to to behavioral issues uh, but before we i guess we go on we wanted to know why advocacy why did why did you get involved and how did you get involved into the um into heart heart health advocacy I've always been interested in just kind of like, if you saw a problem, how do you fix the problem, right? From a really um, young age. And I went to school in college and I thought I was going to go to law school. And I really wanted to be a family lawyer and really help kids and all of that. And so I was a political science major when I went to UConn, University of Connecticut. And um, I ended up really liking the policy stuff. And I don't, to be frank, I don't really love school. So the thought of going to more school and more standardized tests is not really my jam. And I really like the policy. And I realized that you could make real significant change by making policy change, right? So if you want to make systems change or environmental change, you make it through policy change. And so I started to, I interned um, at a couple of state houses, both in Connecticut, Massachusetts, and just got the bug, right? And really loved it and really wanted to be a lobbyist. That was really what I wanted to do. And it took a number of years. And my family is really um, touched by heart disease and stroke. My grandfather, who was my Pepe, um, had multiple heart surgeries and ultimately had a massive stroke and died. And so, you know, I think for me, stroke has really touched my life personally. And so I wanted to make sure that, you know, when I had kids that my parents were still alive so they could have grandparents in their lives. And so... I was really fortunate that the Heart Association, um, this job opened up and they gave me a shot. I had no lobbying experience, so it was kind of probably for them a long shot, but hopefully I think it turned out okay for them. Um, And I think to be, you know, um, I joke sometimes that I don't know if I'd be as good of a lobbyist if I didn't care as much about the issue, maybe. Um, I think some of it is just, you know, you have to have kind of no fear, right? You just need to go and, and really please your case with people and grab people when you can, because you're probably gonna have 30 seconds to kind of sell them on an issue. And, you know, a little bit, you know, you joked earlier that you wouldn't want to mess with me. I think there's some people that just kind of do things because they don't, they don't want me to keep coming back. (laughs) Right. And um, sort of that. So there's a little fear there, which is okay. And just really, I think though, because I do really care about the issue, and I meet so many um, people that this is personally touched, like my advocates and my volunteers, I brag that I have the best in the world. um, And I truly do believe that. And I think that it's also different every day, right? Because it's a different issue. And so it keeps it, which is what has made me stay so long, right? Is that it's not always the same issue. And it's issues I really care about. And I really want to see because they they have a personal touch. Like I remember one of the very first bills I passed was a defibrillator and health club bill. And this was a mom who lost her daughter, who was like 21, I think at the time she was working out at a health club. And she collapsed and there was no defibrillator. And her mom was a nurse and a bunch of nurses rallied around and got this bill filed. And they reached out and we worked on it. And I remember when I could call the mom and tell her that the bill was done and it didn't, couldn't save Kayla, but the amount of people it has saved since, that's like that mom feels really strong about that, right? So, you know, that to me is, I can do that. Like when we finally pass stroke, I can think of all the people that will get better level of care that won't come to me and I won't see the disabilities that they shouldn't have had, right? And so that, even on its worst day, I can remember that. As frustrating as it is sometimes that it takes a really long time to pass a bill, I think that's what kind of drives me. But yeah, that's where I started. I'm going to come back to the frustra- how you did with frustration in a bit, but um, we have, um, I don't know if Wendy went to UConn, but I know your daughter is going to, Wendy's daughter is going to UConn. So 
Um, I saw you say go yeah. Huskies, but I also uh, wanted to use Huskies. this opportunity to introduce <laughs> the two of you uh, because Wendy is also one of a, a very fearless um, patient advocates, mostly in that space. But I wanted to see if she had any reaction, but also, yeah, what, what connects her to UConn before she goes on to that? Is she there now or is she going there? No, the hey. daughter is going there, she, right? She's Yeah, she's going to be starting there in September or in August. Oh, oh, yeah, for veterinary medicine. Yeah. Oh, perfect. Good. School. That's yeah. what I keep hearing from people. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I yeah. would, but I, I want to definitely connect. Yeah. Yeah. I'll make sure you have my, yeah, that I will tell you they've done um, in the time that I was there until now, they've, the school is amazing. They've done, they've really invested. They've, they've um, really put money in, but for certain majors, so veterinary for nursing, for education, it's such a strong program. I haven't known a single person that hasn't come out with like really strong connections and gotten a job. So she'll do great. Um, and they just, um, the state fully embraces it as the state university. There's a lot of support from the community, a lot of support, a lot of opportunities um, throughout. So I, it was a great four years. Um, I, you know, it didn't feel it was big enough, but not too big. Yeah. Lots of like good, you know, you, the, if you want to get involved in something, there's lots of opportunities to get involved. Um, I went in playing a sport, um, which was challenging as division one. And, um, so I took a step back and then I played a club level sport and I did a couple other things. And it was, it was truly one of the best experiences. I'm so, I'm very fortunate that that is my school. You can see I have it behind me, but yeah, <laughs> I was there when the men right. won their very first national championship. So I am, um, that's, that's how long ago I went. <laughs> okay. Great. That's exciting. Great. So yeah, you. she, she has a, an alma mater, but hi, I, I Wendy, what's, um, I want to hear your reaction to what you heard so far. Um, you being involved in this space on another, I guess, from another angle. Yeah, no, I think it's, I think it's terrific. And um, I, I spent a little bit of time one day on the state at the state house, um, trying to pass the bill to make sure that defibrillators were in all of the schools, um, oh. it, it not public and non-public um, yeah. in private you, schools. Were you friends it, with so that, the assessors? I worked with some different organizations. Oh, okay. Because we, yeah, we so, led that. Oh my God, that was like 25 years we worked on that bill. Um, it's crazy how long it took, but we had a really strong group of um, yeah. advocates on that that were relentless, I would say. Um, a couple of parents that unfortunately lost kids um, because defibrillators weren't available. So yeah, since 2018, right. they've been in all schools, which has been amazing. Um, in 2009, we first required medical emergency response plans in schools, so they would actually be prepared if they had defibrillators, because we used to hear such tragic, tragic stories of someone would go down, a school would have a defibrillator, but it would be locked in like a nurse's office, and no one could get it, which is just crazy. Right. Um, and so we did that first. Right. And then so by 2018, when we finally passed defibrillators in schools, and we were, again, one of the we're very behind in kind of defibrillator placement and CPR requirements in Massachusetts, which again is crazy because we're such a healthcare leader. Um, but yeah, so it's, mm -hmm. all, it's been since then, we've had a number of saves because of that, um, because we've put defibrillators in schools. I'm yeah. sure. So I'm thank sure. you for your advocacy. Sure. That's sure. really great. Yeah, no, I love, um, I was, I was really excited to be there that day and to be able to, you know, to work with the other advocates and get a, you know, like you said, you get 30 seconds sometimes and you're just banging on the door and you're just like, I just need <laughs> five seconds of your time. Um, and so you talk really fast, but you know, you, if you come at it with the passion of a parent, which, you know, uh, so many of us do, 
um, you can you can get them to hear what you're talking about. And um, clearly that works. So I continue. Yeah, to and I think people are scared, time. right? People like general public people think it's scary, right? I'm going to go to the state house, and why would a legislator want to listen to me? And they get really nervous, and I have to remind them that they're people like you, and they put their pants on one leg at a time, hopefully. And um, you know that they, um, you know that it's that you actually, you're technically their boss, right? You vote them right. in and they should take the time to listen to you. And I will say we're really fortunate. Um, you know, the vast majority of legislators in Massachusetts are here for the right reasons because they want to make that change and they do really care about their constituents and they want to mm-hmm. hear from them because that's what really should, that really should be what dictates, you know, legislation. And sometimes right. like the defibrillator one just seems like, why wouldn't we do it? And why did it take 20 plus years to do, which is crazy. Um, and I will say the day we passed that we had, um, we had a couple of families, um, three in particular who had lost kids. Um, Mm -hmm. and I remember thinking if we had just passed it five years earlier, their kids would have been there. And so as much of a happy day as it was that we passed it, it was really, really sad to know that we waited so long that we lost, you know, four kids. Right. And that was really hard. Yeah. I know there was there was a, a bill, and I, I'd be interested to see if it's happening in Massachusetts. But it passed, um, I don't know, maybe seven, five, five to seven years ago in New Jersey. Um, the HCMA, Lisa Salberg was the one, and um, Lisa Yu from the Children's Cardiomyopathy Foundation kind of spearheaded it in terms of making sure that um, heart health questions were asked during wellness visits for young kids. Do you have any? What does that look like in Massachusetts? So, uh, yeah, I was covering New Jersey. Um, I was overseeing the staff person when that bill went through, actually. So the Heart Association has hopefully some evolving science around that. But um, over the years, we haven't been so fully supportive of universal screenings in those questions. Um, the questions part we have been, but to test the kids, um, you know, every kid. Personally, right, you know, I've, I've heard from the parents and it breaks my heart. And I, you know, and then I think as a parent, I just test every kid. But um, but to add the, the, the more like, especially when kids are going through the sports physicals, right, those questions. And so we do provide guidance around that. We've had some conversations, there's a few legislators that are interested in it, the bill has not come up, but we have, um, we have a few advocates, there's actually a doctor out of Mass General um, that uh, he, he was in, I think it was Africa. And he brought his son and they were like testing like this old equipment just to see and they scanned his son and they found like they they found found something. Yeah. And so, yeah. yeah. And he came back and he was like, well, what are we doing? Right. And and so he's been doing a very large study. And so um, we've been doing a little bit work with him. And then we have another mom that has a foundation called Kev's Foundation who lost her son. Yeah. Yeah, Sue. Sue Cannon is one of my favorite people. And she's a longtime volunteer. And so we've been working a little bit. She has a bill that would require um, education for parents and coaches around what you would like signs and questions to ask and things like that. And I think we will get to a point where and we'll work um, with the schools on, on the question piece. We're not quite there yet. I wish we were. I think it's really important. There's been so many kind of misdiagnosed um, underlying heart conditions in kids. Um, and it's just tragic. I mean, that's usually, if you see a kid go down on a field, it's usually something that a parent didn't know about. And unfortunately, right. usually the first sign of it on a lot of these is cardiac death, right? It's not, it's not like, you know, something that you can prevent. It's not. Mm-hmm. So that's the hardest thing. But yeah, but we can connect offline on that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Absolutely. I want to start volunteering. I'll put, I'll put your, <laughs> um, I send the email to Wendy, your email to Wendy. So Perfect. Wendy, 
you can feel free to, yeah. to connect. <laughs> I will, and I'll reach out on LinkedIn as well. Yeah. Oh, great. So I, want, I wanted to step back and see, um, you know, you, you mentioned some of the moments that are very um, emotional, especially when you hear um, testimonies and parent stories, but also some moments would be frustrating. So how do you, um, I mean, if you do, how do you keep your neutral? How do you, how do you, how do you recover and how do you make sure that, you know, you still have the, uh, the will or the strength to go back the next day and, and, and keep on going, especially what these things are very long-term. Um, but yeah. Yeah. It's hard, right? It is a very, it can be a very frustrating job at times. I would say last week I had a very frustrating week. We lost um, tobacco flavoring in Maine. Um, the industry just won the battle. Um, and it, it was a, it was a hard couple of days because when you work really hard on an issue and you know, it's the right thing and you know, you know, one in three kids is using a tobacco product and you want to do the right thing, or you see how many people, you know, how many kids are dropping and you're not doing anything about it or stroke survivors. Um, you know, I think for me, it's, I, I tend to, um, my boss would tell you I'm really competitive and I like the win. So I tend to shake it off and say, okay, what do, what do I need to do differently to make that win and really um, continue on? I think there's certain issues that I will not feel successful unless they get done. Stroke is one of those. Um, I felt that way about defibrillators in schools. We fought that one for a really long time. And so I think some of that is the volunteers and the advocates and their stories fuel me really well. And just knowing the difference we can make. I think from a legislative standpoint, it's never in question if the issue is important, right? You know, and then you get good days like this, right? So this is our tobacco when we pass tobacco flavoring and I get to work with these are the legislators and the staff, which were some of the best. Um, and you and you can take those good days. And so when you remember the bad days, right? You remember you try to re, you kind of flip it and do that. Um, you know, I think I'm really lucky, you know, I get to come home to my son and know he's, he's healthy and that most of the stuff I'm doing is to make the world better for him. Um, and so that does help me, but yeah, there are frustrating days. It takes a really long time to pass a bill and that sometimes really stinks. Right. And you're, and you, and people are just like, I don't, you know, and I think from sometimes it's harder on our advocates, right? Because if you're a survivor or you're a parent and you've lost a kid, and, and you hear from a legislator, well, that defibrillator just costs too much money. And you think, what? Like, my kid's life isn't worth $1,000, right? Like, you know what they could have done with their life if they were alive? I think sometimes it's harder for the advocates. So for me, I know I have to keep fighting because sometimes they can't, right? Sometimes they just need the break. It's too hard for them, right? If they've lost a loved one and they put everything into this fight, and they've passed it and maybe there's something else, but they need a break or they didn't pass it and they need a break. I have to keep going because that's what's important, right? Yeah. And so that really fuels me most days. <laughs> most days. Um, I like that. I have to I have to quickly bring up, um, I think this is the other one that helps a lot, um, Riley. So I have to kind of right. show the world some of the work it does. Um, yeah. I think we met... We met when he was a baby. He was very young. Um, we met in 2018, which is three years. So he must yeah. have been two. Yeah. Um, and, and I could see, you know, two, two is a difficult age, but I could see, <laughs> you know, the fun. So how has it, how has it been with, uh, you know, Riley? Um, you know, I, I don't know. Has it been, how's it been, yeah, parenting and dealing with these issues, um, on a daily, on a daily and then, you know, keeping up with him because I know he's very active. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, I think uh, work-life balance is hard. Being a mom is hard or a dad is hard. Um, overall, I think, you know, um, 
he does he's an only so he doesn't always have the siblings to entertain so he usually needs mom's attention a lot which is hard but having him home during the pan you know for the first few months of the pandemic um thankfully school opened up last summer so like he went right back as soon as he could um that was challenging but it was also the most time i ever spent with him right like it was longer than my maternity leave um so you know i three is probably the hardest age you know i think when you're in the when you're in the stage like newborn stage although i'm sure it's different with twins but like newborn stage felt like endless to me like oh my god um three was just hard because i don't know i think he was really whiny at three um but he's almost six and this is a fun age because he's really inquisitive and he's really like really imaginative and likes to play things and and learn about things and um ask a lot of questions and it's funny because his teachers will say, I think he knows more about space or trains or something more than I do. And he was like, he probably does. <laughs> I want to I hear about a train because I want to know how, how, what connects him to train and why, why is he? Yeah. So um, how much he knows about it. Cause I don't, I mean, I don't even know all the lines here, but he knows yeah, so he, so his dad has always liked trains and liked model trains. And so when he was old enough, he started getting wooden trains and he likes to build train sets. Um, and he's really great about knowing how to put switches and build it and all of that. Um, and so during the pandemic, we started take, I started taking him to watch trains. And so we live um, right near uh, Mansfield in the 95 corridor, right? So we get a commuter rail and then Amtrak whizzes by us in a cell right? which got him to think why we can't have electrified commuter rail, because if we have Amtrak and <laughs> that, why not? Right. Which is quite brilliant for a five-year-old. So then we started going to 128 station and then we went to South station and then North station. I've taken him to the state house. So we really like the subways. And so then we started um, riding, he's ridden all the subway lines. So he knows the stops and he knows where he wants to go. It's been good because, you know, when we were trying to keep them really extra safe during the pandemic, it was an outside activity that no one was at. Right. And so um, everyone still wears their masks on the train. So it makes me feel a little bit more safe than even indoors at like Target these days. Um, and so, you know, I think and he's just been he's really wanted to learn about him. So like he has um, that's his drawing. He draws trains. He models trains. He watches his train videos. <laughs> I tries to get the trains to beep at him. That's his kind of goal in life. Um, yes, that's special. Yeah. So next up for him is he wants to ride the Acela, but I tell him the pandemic, the coronavirus has to be completely gone before we do that. <laughs> that's that's safer. But I wanna this this is the last thought on O'Reilly, and I hope he's gonna have a cameo because this that was this was my one of my excuses for that. He wrote a letter to the governor, and then because we just talked about that, like a few, you told me a few. Actually, you sent me a, a picture a few weeks, few months ago. And he got a cool reply, but I want to know what, you know, what was like, that like for him? Because he's already into advocacy, I can see. Yeah. So, you know, it's funny because he he kind of knows what mom does, right? He he knows I'm a lobbyist and he'll know I go to the state house. He finds the state house really fascinating. He has um, one of my good friends is now a legislator, but was a staffer. And so he knows, you know, um, Mr. Ted, which is Representative Phillips. And um, he's, you know, kind of done those things. And so one day we were watching trains and he said to me, I just don't understand why we wouldn't have electrified rail for the commuter rail. And he's like, that just would make more sense. It would be better. We wouldn't smell the diesel smell. Right. And, um, and he's right. Right. I mean, on many levels from an environmental standpoint, and he's like, we already have the, like wires, like the infrastructure is already here. Right. And I was like, yeah, yeah, it is. And so I said to him, well, you know, you should write a letter to the governor. And so, um, you know, mom, 
has a friend that works for the governor. So I sent the letter to her and she was like, oh, I'm going to let him and he's going to see this and we're going to write back. Took a little bit to write back. I wasn't sure if we we're going to see it. But he wrote, you know, dear Governor Baker, I think we should have electrified commuter rails, Riley Drag, age five, and then drew his idea. Yes. And so we got a letter from the governor last week that thanked him for his idea and said that it was a really, you know, it was a really good one. And he, he'd love to hear his idea and he would, you know, he'd let him know. So, yeah. So <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, and I think it's very cool of the governor to, to respond because um, these are important moments. And I think. Um, yeah, because I mean, he was so I mean, he was so over the moon. He brought it for show. He has show and tell every Friday. He brought it for show and tell because they were studying America last week and he thought it was, you know, really it was about government and he could show. Yeah. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, he likes to call the he during the pandemic. I used to watch the um, the updates from the governor. Yeah. So he used to watch sometimes with me and he called him the government. Well, he represented the government. So it's Which is funny. Right. And so I had told um, the governor's policy director that he calls him the government. And so when I sent the picture, I was like, you know. I made him write Governor Baker, not government. She goes, I think he would have liked to have been called government. So I guess the governor does know that Riley refers to him as the government and enjoys that greatly. So maybe one day he'll get to meet him in person. Yeah, I hope yeah. So. he deserves to. And I'm, I'm also already thinking that maybe he'll be an engineer or something. So Yeah, yeah. He's really like very like he knows how to build. He's always um, built blocks and Legos and other things. And he's just um, really fascinating. So he'll come home. He'll come up with his own train layout and he'll build it and then he'll build some stations around it. And yeah, so it's really good. Basically, like a lot of infrastructure, a lot of planning. So I really, yeah. I really love it. Yeah, I'm very inspired. And I know you guys do a lot of work at the, uh, at the, at the association. So I wanted to know, like, what are some of the new initiatives you've taken on? What are some of the recent ones that you, yeah. you like to bring? I mean, you, you would love to have more, I guess, awareness on or more, maybe more visibility on yeah, so this year we've added a few new issues. So we're working on a universal school meals bill. So meaning that no matter if you can afford to pay for um, school meals or not, that you would get universal breakfast and universal lunch at school. Um, we saw such a huge gap in um, food insecurity during the pandemic and how many kids, um, if they weren't going to school, that they weren't going to eat. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, thankfully systems were put in place so parents could go and pick up the food. But we also know what gets harder is that there's so many families that maybe just miss being able to qualify for free or reduced lunch, and yet they really can't afford the food. And so we need to make sure that we're giving both families and kids this opportunity and that there's no shaming in that, right? Like if someone hasn't paid for their food that the kid still gets to eat, you know, that's crazy, um, you know, in this country. So that's a new issue for us. Also making sure that women get postpartum care, right? And so if you're on uh, Medicaid or MassHealth, you get like six weeks. That's what you get covered, right? For postpartum care. That's crazy. You need like a year. Like we should be checking on these moms, right? Like we should be making sure that they have the care that they need. You know, I, you know, I'm really fortunate and I had health insurance and all that, but I remember like, you know, when you're pregnant, it's like you go, I felt like every day for an appointment, right? And then as soon as you have the baby, like that's it, right? And like everyone just checks on the baby and no one checks on you. And so I think we need to make sure that women, especially their mental health, that they're doing okay and they have what they need and they have a strong support system. So that's a new issue I'm really excited about. And then we have, this is our second year of it, but it's a fairly newer issue for us around telephone telecommunicator CPR. So when you call 911, 
Yes. They, you're supposed to get, in, if, you, if you're with someone who's had cardiac arrest, you're supposed to get hands-only instructions over the phone. What happens though, unfortunately, is a lot of people are calling from their cell phones. And so it will go to state police and it will ding off the state police. And then it will, they'll ask you a couple questions and then they transfer you to a regional PSAP. They ask you the same five questions. And then if it's determined medical, it finally gets to your local medical. And that's where they give you the instructions. You could be three or four minutes in, which could be too late, you know? And so we want to make sure part of it is just technology. It's crazy that, you know, Uber can find you in your cell phone, but EMS can't, right? Um, And so some of it is just old infrastructure. And so working on it, we require its call takers to be trained in it and do it. It's just how how it gets implemented in the crazy system. And so just making sure that that happens. And also making sure to go back to some of the earlier stuff, we, sudden cardiac arrest is not a reportable disease in Massachusetts. Um, And so we don't know when we work on some of these interventions, like training people in CPR or defibrillators in schools, if we're actually making a difference, right? We know our survival from out-of-hospital cardiac arrest is really bad, right? It's about 10% nationwide in places that have large interventions, like I'll take Seattle, for instance, they're in the 40 to 50% survival. But there's places in Massachusetts that do collect that data, Worcester, for example, they're at a like 3% survival. And so we're like, you know, almost a third less than the national average, which is already bad, right? And so, you know, we, I just think we can do better um, for that kind of stuff. We're also working on um, early education, making sure kids have an ability to have, um, you know, universal pre-K. We know I think the Heart Association for a really long time kind of focused in that K-12 range and then realized that we need to make sure kids are getting those healthy habits early on. Zero to five is really critical, but it's also making sure they have access. So I think as we start to really look at more equity issues, I think we're going to start to try to tackle things like housing and transportation and wages and education. And I'm really excited about that. I think we have a lot of potential to have our voice at that table. We certainly aren't going to there's a lot of groups that have been leading on those those efforts for many years, mm-hmm. and I think that we should um, support them and be partners with them because I think if we are not going to tackle the biggest big issues, you know, around racism and equality, I just don't think we're ever going to really, you know, our mission is to make sure that we're a relentless force for longer, healthier lives. Well, that means that we need to make sure that whole environment is available to everyone, right? And I just we're not there yet. So I think we have a lot of work to do. Yeah, I mean, these are, these are, um, I'm like, I had a few questions in my head and you answered many of them already. And, uh, um, but, it, uh, but um, I mean, I'm also not surprised because I know you, um, you're very active, you're very widespread in terms of the, uh, across the system. And, and that's a lot of um, ground to cover. Um, I myself, I've been looking at, I've been talking a little bit more with um, Lawrence. Uh, oh, yeah. And some of your team uh, trying to see what, I guess, at our level, what we can do for the community. Um, I guess our initial focus what are, for us would be to maybe look at hypertension and, and see how, um, I guess, the narrative around equity, but also education component, but not just the individual, but also as a family. So they can have those conversations uh, globally. And then hypertension, I think, is like, it's more prevalent, but it's also, I think, easier to explain or to 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 make, to to catch. Uh, but it's amazing how a um, lot of these things are also connected, like all the social, social determinants. Because for us, for instance, uh, we like it that both of us work, but childcare is a big issue because you have to 
you know, either you pay for it. I mean, you have to pay for it, but you also have to be there. You know, you have to pick up folks. Um, it's expensive. It's, you know, we're, we are probably one of the most expensive places for not, for housing and childcare, right? Yeah. And so it's really hard to think about if you have multiple kids, like, is it worth working, right? And like what that comes in that balance. And I think, speaking of hypertension, I think so many people have uncontrolled hypertension because they can't either afford the medicine that it would be, or they can't afford to go to the doctor's appointments because they're working multiple jobs or the doctor, you know, the hours or the transportation, they have to take 12 buses to get there. And so there's so many factors that go into why people have uncontrolled high blood pressure, right? It might be just the fact that they have so much stress because they're trying to feed their family. They're trying to house their family. They're trying to close their family. They're trying to get their family to school. Um, it just might be a family history and they just can't, you know, that doesn't get changed. And so I do think if we tackle some of the hypertension issues in particular in Boston, I think we could dramatically change. But I think we have to think about the bigger picture, like to your point of what is causing some of this hypertension and can we tackle that? Um, you know, at Lawrence, who does our community health is really you know, the Heart Association made a big commitment to make sure that we were in the community, that we could be a trusted partner and that we met people where they were. And so we weren't just coming from them as a large national organization, that we really were listening to them and we built partnerships and we worked with, you know, the health centers to make sure people were able to take a blood pressure cuff home so they didn't always have to go into a doctor's to get tested, right? And that they knew how to use it and that their family knew how to use it. And they that they, if they needed the support to get the medicine, you know, and to get that covered, that that was, that was an option and they weren't going to decide between paying rent and getting their high blood pressure medicine. Thank you so much. I, I want to see if uh, Wendy has one more question or one last question. Uh, I have a few follow-up I have and um, that I'm going to ask. Um, also, Odile, for you, um, if you want to ask a question we'll, before we start getting to the tail end of the discussion. Yeah, it's okay for me. It's uh, I'm I'm listening. I'm fascinating. How much energy, Alison, you put in your advocacy is really brilliant because it's um, you know I lost my my best friend from uh, art fellow, so that's why I'm uh, as well here and uh, I'm so touched because uh, it's not so so much people. It's not enough people like you. You know, to really to to go for it. <laughs> it's really great. I appreciate that. Thank you. I'm sorry for your loss. Yeah, I yeah. That's okay. <laughs> but it is what feel. I mean, that those are the stories that feel me, right? That's why I do what I do. I really, you know, um, you know, I always joke that I could make a lot more money advocating for something else, but I don't yeah. know that I would. Um, <laughs> that I would I would feel good about myself at the end of the day. You know, I have friends that are always like, how do you think the tobacco industry like does it? I'm like, I think they sleep in their big pile of money and they feel just fine. <laughs> um, but I, yeah, I think, you know, it is, it's hard work, but it's really, really rewarding. And yeah, I get to work with people like you guys, which is really the best part yeah. of the job. She, she's very charming too. So I couldn't say no. <laughs> no, and once I have you, like you don't get out. Like you're stuck. I, I was really touched. I was really touched because we were, you know, we just connected. I think it was through Anne. Um, and you know, we just connected after the hard work. And then you said you're coming all the way to Dorchester. I'm like, she doesn't work nearby. And then you and then I think you I don't even know. I think you took the train. And then yeah, so I was I was really touched by that. And then um and then yeah, and then the kids, I think we were like we were pregnant, like I said, and 
So since then, yeah. And but I mean, you guys are really doing great work, and you you, you as much as it's hard and everything, and as much as you're doing great work, it's it's also like to your to um, Odile's point, um, you need more help. There there need to be more people yeah. involved. So um, yeah, that's. I mean, it's really we. And I, I would, I say this wholeheartedly. I would never get a policy passed without advocates, without volunteers, without people joining us. It's, ne- it's never just me. Thankfully, it's I'm not, you know, whether it's partners that we have or our advocates. It's really powerful. Like I remember when we did the defibrillator in schools bill, and the governor at the time was Romney, and he wasn't sure he was going to sign it, and we had hundreds of phone calls in. And I think wow. he realized like what that would mean if he didn't sign it. He was also going to run for president. And I think there was some worry there where that was going to go if he didn't sign something. But, um, you know, I think, you know, that passion that comes along. Right. And it's just I, it's my job to find the right fit. Right. It's to hear your story and figure out where best you can advocate, because, you know, if you really care about stroke, I'm probably not going to ask you to advocate about tobacco, right? And so I want to find the right fit. And sometimes it's not advocacy. Sometimes it's our other events, right? And, um, you know, and that's okay. And sometimes people come in through our events and then they fall in love with advocacy. And so, you know, I think for us, the Heart Association, you know, we wouldn't have a mission without money, but we wouldn't have money without mission. And so they go really hand in hand. Um, And, you know, I think it's, for me, it's like someone might come in and just say, I want something really easy. I just want to send an alert. And then I I can see a little bit like, I know you can do a little bit more, right? And so, you know, we kind of bring them up that ladder of engagement, as I like to call it, and, and try to find that. And then to the point where, you know, we have legislators that know their advocates, right? And won't forget their stories. And will say like, oh, I heard from Booba today. So like, I'm in, like, you can count on me. And you know, that's how we, that's the army. You know, I feel like we build an army and then we're kind of unstoppable. Yeah, no, it's more than, I mean, I didn't even know our own legislators. So it's <laughs> when we went to the thing, then I'm like, oh, these are the names. And then I remember, uh, I think it was Timilty. He wasn't yeah. there. Uh, but then one of his, um, one of his staff members met me, um, I think a week or so after uh, in person. So, but it kind of, you know, you know, especially when you go and meet the person or you talk to the person, um, it, you know, it, it pushes you to a, a certain level of engagement. So that was, to me, that was, those moments I added up and I'm kind of more, much more committed, but also gives you a, vi- a window of, of what's possible. And, and and I think that's that's very important. Yeah, because I also think people think, oh, you know, the Heart Association, oh, I know someone who does the Heart Walk and I write a check or I know a Dear Neighbor campaign or the Go Red stuff. And then they don't realize like really what that money does. And so sometimes the advocacy side of it can show you the real change and the real impact that you can have, right? You know, that we can make sure people, you know, hundreds of thousands of people have access to fresh fruits and vegetables, that people can go, you know, in a workplace and not have smoking, that our kids have good food in their lunches and things like that. And you can really, that's like a tangible thing you can feel and it affects you. And so, you know, it gets you feeling more connected to the organization. Usually what we find is that when people are engaged in advocacy, they're far more apt to, then want to be more engaged on the other side of the house, right? Whether that's giving more money because they see the value in it. And so, yeah. um, you know, great. And I would much rather be on my side than asking for money. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, it's like, uh, it's division of labor, right? So I think, yeah. I think knowing where you fit in properly is very important. Um, uh, and that was key. Yeah, for me, it was, yeah, the, uh, I tell, I tell, sometimes I tell people like, I'll be the evangelist. I can use my voice. 
And then uh, I can I can use some technical words and some and people are like, are you a doctor? I'm like, no, I'm not a doctor. No, I'm just a patient. That's yes, had a lot like, of doctors. Okay, yeah, yeah, I cannot be, I could I wouldn't even want to be. Um, yeah, you're like I play one on TV sometimes. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah, I say that sometimes. Yeah. I get a lot of um sometimes I get legislators telling me they're like they have high blood pressure or they have diabetes or they don't control. And I'm like, I'm not a doctor. Like, please don't tell me these things. Like, yes. I don't need to know that you're at high risk for stroke. Like, I'm always scared. I'm like, I say something and they will go do that. And that, you know, so, so <laughs> I went to the Brigham one time. Actually, when I had my Elbert surgery, uh, I came in, I was all dressed up and I brought my, um, my carry on and I went straight to the room because I knew which room number it was. They just assumed I was a doctor. So they, they came in and, and then, and then they started talking to me. And then the doctors came and they started talking to me and trying to ask me, oh, I heard you're a doctor. I'm like, where is this coming sorry, sorry coming from? And then for months, for months, they kept asking me. I'm like, guys, this is, I don't even know if it was a joke, but it's like, they just came. Not a doctor. <laughs> and what made it worse is like, there's a privacy setting at the hospital where they have like to, you know, enter the information, like break the glass, which only happened for staff members or VIPs. And then I'm like, you wouldn't think I was a VIP. So, so because they have to do that for me, they're like, Oh, does it work here? But no. So it was very funny. I don't know who set that up to, but I'm very happy they did. So it's like <laughs> always funny. No, thank you so much. I think uh, I have one more question and then maybe we'll start wrapping up. But I wanted to know if there was any space, any activity in the space of genetic testing um, and maybe also mental health. Um, I mean, I know some of these elements already have that, but I wanted to know if there was any specific. Yeah, so we started a mental health. We are really starting to look at mental health. Um, brain health in particular is so tied to cardiovascular disease. Um, they're so interconnected. So we're starting to do a lot more around mental health. Um, be interested. It's not, it hasn't yet kind of trickled down to like what we could do in advocacy. Um, you know, I would say probably across the country, I probably have the largest advocacy agenda. So I would certainly be willing to throw something else on if we figured out what that was. Yeah. Um, I always kind of joke that like, I'm, I'm always a little rogue, right? Like if I have a volunteer that wants to do something, I try to figure out how to do it. Um, and stuff, I'm definitely so. working on that. That's one of my angles. Yeah. Um, we do, we, I want to launch this community program. And then one of the angle is definitely um, mental health or brain health. Um, not just individual, but as a, as a, as a, as a family. Yeah. Contract, yeah. And I think, again, you're not going to have heart health if you don't have good mental health, right? It's, it's really tied together. So I definitely think we need to tackle that. And the genetic side, we're starting to do that. We, we started to do a lot around like kind of precision medicine and trying to figure out a lot more of the connections. I'm actually talking um, to a group out of Brigham on genetics uh, tomorrow, I think, and then doing a presentation in August. So I will have a little bit more around that um, as well, because I think, you know, we need to start to really, I, I think to go back to Wendy's question about, you know, when, if you start to think about screening questions, right? Like, how do you really get at what is causing some of these really um, severe underlying heart conditions and how do we better tackle them, right? Like, how do we almost, um, you know, like where we get to the point where we know that a baby has a condition in utero, like how do we then go in and fix that condition? Or how do we make sure that we know before that baby, like what's going to happen, you know, with, with genetics, like what's going to happen and how do we tackle that? So, I think, you know, um, the Heart Association has funded, you know, we, we fund with the second highest funder to the federal government around cardiovascular disease, and we, we fund a lot. And so we start to find these opportunities. And so I think we're going to start to see more in that space. So stay tuned, I would say on that. Definitely. And I'm sure Wendy will follow up on that because she's been involved with, um, what's yeah. the name, new name now? My, myocardia, but they buy it. Is it MBS? 
Yeah, myocardia was purchased by um, Bristol Myers Squibb, but no, I work with Tanaya Therapeutics now. Yeah. So with their heart health division. Yeah, right, and genetics. Yeah. yeah. So you guys yeah. have a lot to talk about. Oh, great. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Great. Thank you so much. I think um, this has been great, and I'm sure there will be a follow-up uh, conversation. I, I say that to everybody, but mm-hmm. I have a few more to unpack as I spend more time on the ground. Um, yeah. And then I think we, you know, we're gonna have a lot of continued disc- discussion. I'm still wait- expecting Riley to show up. No, hold on, I'll get him. Hold on, he's supposed to come in. I don't know what he's doing. <laughs> don't let me down, Riley. Hey, Riley. I didn't hear you. That's okay. Come on. You say hi to Booba. Hey, Riley. Uh, How you doing? Good. Talking about trains earlier. I want to yeah, know all about your trains. I heard you got a letter. Where'd you get a letter from? The government. The government. The government. Yeah. <laughs> Did you get it from what, the government? What was the letter about? What was, what was um, it? You left your commuter out. Yeah? Mm-hmm. And you want them to be electric? Yeah. Nice. Will they go faster? Yeah. And will it be better for the environment? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what do you want? What's next? You're going to write to the president about what? Of the wall, I forget. Bullet? The bullet bullet train? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So you want the train to go from where to where? Where do you want the train to go? Into Chicago. Boston to Chicago? Really fast? Or New York? Where? Which one's further? Chicago's further. Chicago. Chicago. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. It's like, what's the hardest one? Thank you so much, Riley. I'm so happy. And I'm so, um, I love the stories you, you have. I love, I love that you're very smart. So you keep doing that. And hopefully one day you'll tell us, you'll bring us on your train, okay? Mm-hmm. All right, thank yeah. you so much. And say hi to daddy for us. And then mm-hmm. um and then you continue to be awesome, okay? Mm-hmm. Thank you Bye-bye. so much. Bye. Bye bye. <laughs> thank you so much, Alice. This was special. Yeah. This, you can see I miss my boys too, but yeah. 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 <laughs> thank I you. know. We'll have to do some when they get back, we'll do some train watching near yes. you. Yes, no, they love they uh, it was one of my I think when Desiree was pregnant with the twins, I used to do that with Burak. We just get on the train and then we go all the way to Cambridge, you know, walk around. Um, and, and yeah, it was fun. But I don't think he's a very, yeah, I don't think he would remember the lines and stuff, but he's very into like everything he says he will remember and stories. So it'll be funny to see how they interact. So we should yeah. also play that. Yeah, we'll do that. Thank you so much. I think You're I'll so let you have the last few words. Um, what are, what's your like the last message you'd like to share with everybody? Like how can people support? And then um, yeah, I think for me it's really you know why I do this work again is if you if you see something that you think needs to be changed, you just have to figure out how to advocate for that. There's probably a group working on it, and to really just use your voice for that. And if there isn't, then start a group, right? Because it probably if you see the need for change, somebody else sees it too. And so I think just sometimes you got to stand up. And advocacy is really about using your voice and being willing to be the person who speaks up and speaks out, right? Um, And then others will join you. And, you know, I think there's, you know, sometimes you might be small but mighty and and that's okay. You know, I mean, I think good change can come. And so do that. That would be what I'd say. So if it's not on heart health, find something to advocate for. Like not not tobacco. Yeah, no, no. (laughs) Not that though. Something good. Something good. Thank you so much, Alison. This was Thank special. You so much. I hope everybody enjoyed it like I did. Uh, Wendy, I'll let Thank you also you so see you unmuted. Yep. Thank you. This was awesome. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. It was so lovely to meet all of you. Thank you.
Bye. Thank bye. you. Yeah, have fun. Thank you so much. Good luck with the weather. Bye. <laughs> bye. We had a great chat with Alison. Uh, she's an advocate. She's the lead advocate at the American Association in Boston. Uh, involved with a lot of activities. Uh, we had a small cameo with the son, who's five, six, turning six. And then we had Wendy and Odile on a call, special call to see what's really happening behind the scene at the policy level. Um, and all these things like you know, not to work on public, um, they're working on systemic issues just as um, um, CPR over the phone, stroke, making sure the stroke um, um, accidents are routed to the nearest or to the best um, hospitals, to the most adequate hospitals. Um, there's talks about taxing sugary drinks um, and make sure that those funds are channeled for, towards uh, um, the communities. Uh, we touched on a little bit about equi on equity. Uh, we talked about child care and houses and all, all these social determinants affect um, heart health. Um, there's more work to do and uh, we're looking forward to that. So thanks for tuning in. Thank you. We are reminded that we are all connected through our experiences of friends, family, and community. We thank our guests for your generosity of heart, looking beyond your sorrows to share your journeys and inspire others. And thank you for listening to this episode. We hope it did your heart good. Visit us online for more resources at heartofagiant.org.